The scripture reading is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 1 to 6. If you are using the Black Pew Bible, it can be found on page 849. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. May the Lord bless the reading of his words in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Passage that um, Eunice read for us tells us that there's a picture, there's a model um, that God has that he wants to represent something. And what he wants to represent is he wants to show us how to come closer to him and perhaps even more importantly, how he has moved closer to us. Now, I have here a, a building. Does anybody know what, what this beautiful uh, handcrafted building might be? Anybody? Wow, it doesn't look that familiar. No one? It's got, I'll give you a clue, it's, it's got a clock on it. Any, anyone know what it is? Okay, it's, it's the astronomical clock, it's Old Town Hall, right? Um, now we can put up a picture of it of, in real and maybe it'll look a little more familiar. Um, now obviously, this is just a model, right? And you can't go inside of it, you can't explore it, it's not very well made, it's made out of cheap foam, and I was able to put it together, and the top part is falling off. So it's not the greatest of models, however, it gives you an idea of what it looks like. That is exactly the message of the tabernacle. What God is doing with the tabernacle was he was establishing um, an understanding with the people of Israel of his holiness and also of his desire for them to enter into his presence again. But it was pointing to something much, much greater. It says in the passage that we just read in Hebrews that it was a pattern, it was a copy or shadow of what is in heaven. And, and that means, yes, there is a tabernacle, there's a dwelling place, because that's what tabernacle means, of God in heaven in his throne room. But more importantly, it points to how God would choose to tabernacle or dwell among us in Jesus Christ. You see, in the tabernacle, God made a huge step forward in coming to humanity. For the first time, 
since the Garden of Eden, God chose to dwell with his people. There had been a separation because of sin that had broken the relationship, and God initiates restoration by establishing the tabernacle as a place for his presence to dwell and a way for the people to reconnect with him. That's what the tabernacle really is all about. But there are things that we can learn about what a relationship with God is that are all portrayed in in visible symbols of the tabernacle. And for many of us, because uh, we tend to spend less time in the Old Testament, and and if you're honest, you know, you... Oftentimes at the beginning of the year, folks get really motivated and they want to begin to read through the scripture and you start in Genesis and things are really, really going well. And then all of a sudden you hit Leviticus. How many of you have ever just quit in the middle of Leviticus? Okay, me too. Okay, and, and, and I'm supposed to read it. I'm like paid to read it, you know, but at sometimes it, 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 I stumble over. Until you understand what God is giving is he's given the exact Um, information to Moses um, in order for us to understand how God is moving closer and how we can connect with him. You know, when Moses was on the mountain, as we we looked at a few moments or a few weeks ago, um, he was there for 40 days. He didn't just receive the Ten Commandments written in stone. He received all of the information about the sacrifice system, about the tabernacle. And as I shared last week, there are over 50 chapters of the Bible that deal with the tabernacle. So it's important to God. And we can learn some things from it as well. And so we're going to explore it a little deeper this week. Um, and we began to last week. And, we, and we, I showed you kind of a, a diagram uh, of what it looks like. And if you can put up a picture of, of the tabernacle there. Um, this is somewhat what it looked like. It had a white linen fence around it um, that um, set it apart. Um, it was proclaiming its holiness, which by the word, way, the word holy means set apart. It stood out. And that white linen fence was a reminder that God is holy and that we can't just um, rush into him on our own. We have to go on his conditions, on his terms, because he is righteous and pure. In fact, the scripture says that our God is like a consuming fire. His holiness is perfect, and so we need to take care as we try to enter into his presence. But the beautiful thing is we, as we looked at, we explored that everything about the tabernacle last week has meaning. All the colors that are used, the type of materials and, and metal that is used, all send a message, and we'll look at some more, some more of those today. The great news is that the tabernacle had a gate right there in the front, was a gate that actually was always open and that any uh, of the children of Israel, any of God's people, if they uh, would humble their heart and confess, could walk into the tabernacle. Now, they could only walk in so far because there was greater restriction that would come along, but they were able to enter in and begin to come into his presence. Now, what what God was doing is he was beginning to fulfill a promise that he gave in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus in chapter 6, God gives several statements that are actually celebrated as part of the the Jewish feast of Passover where he makes some I will promises. 
And the, and the passage that we read in Hebrews says that Jesus Christ, his covenant that he has with us are based upon even greater promises. But one of the ones from the old covenant that um, God established was, he said, I will redeem you with outstretched arms and mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Now, that may not sound that huge to us, but I want to tell you it's, it is incredible. Because what he is saying is that God himself would be the one who would stretch out his arms and bear upon himself the judgment that sin deserved, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And when we celebrate communion or Lord's Supper, which we'll do today, that phrase, that blessing I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment is actually the blessing that goes in a Passover with the cup of redemption, which is what we celebrate in Lord's Supper. When Jesus would have taken that cup and blessed it, he would have quoted from Exodus chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He would have said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, meaning that he was going to stretch out himself on the cross and mighty acts of judgment he would take upon himself. What God is communicating to us is that he loves us so much, he will go to the greatest extreme to make us his own. And the tabernacle tells us just how far he's gone. So when you come into the tabernacle, you had... Um, the outer court, and then you had some different sections in there, and the outer court was the altar, the brazen altar, and uh, the bronze or brazen uh, basin. And then you went into this next section where it's, it's blue on the outside and gold on the inside, and that was the holy place. Inside the holy place, you had um, the lampstand. It looked something like this, only made of pure gold and, and about this high. Okay? And it was all made of one piece of gold. And even, even the ornamentation that God commands on this was significant. We'll look at that probably, probably next week. Um, in addition to the lampstand, which gave light inside the holy place, you also had the table of showbread, which points forward to what we celebrate in communion as the Lord's Supper. Um, and you had the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was where the prayers of the people would go up through the curtain because there's a veil there that separated the Holy of Holies where God's presence actually dwelt. And the incense would permeate that veil going right into the presence of God. And, and it's, a, um, it's a picture of what Jesus, our high priest, does in interceding for us. And it's also uh, a picture of how our prayers go to heaven and that God keeps them. I don't think we'll get there this week, but there's an, uh, it'll probably be next week. But there's an incredible promise in the book of Revelation about your prayers. Sometimes you and I feel like I'm, I'm praying and it just isn't making a difference. It's not making an impact. God has some powerful things to say about what he does with our prayers. And that was the focal point of the altar of incense. And then in the Holy of, place, um, the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant, on top of that Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat, which is actually where the glory of God dwelt. So that's, in general, kind of the outline of the picture of the tabernacle and, uh, and its different components. 
But in each place, as you went closer and closer towards the presence of God, the area got smaller and there were greater restrictions on who could come in. Anyone could come into the outer court and offer a sacrifice for sin, for guilt, or an offering to the Lord. But only the priests, only those that God had chosen and ordained, could actually go into the holy place. There was a separation again from them. And it's the holy of holies, only the high priest once a year on the day of atonement could enter into the presence of God and be able to place there below the Ark of the Covenant an offering for the sins of the people. And we'll, we'll look at that on the Day of Atonement in a little bit. And so you, what you see is a picture reminding us that God is holy and that his access is limited to those who are able to meet the requirements that he makes. But here's the great news, the incredible news, is that Jesus Christ met all those requirements for all of us. So today, you and I, if you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are welcomed into the very presence of God. That veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place, the scripture says, was torn in two when Jesus died upon the cross and said, it is finished. Opening up access for everyone to come into God's presence. From the very form of the tabernacle, it communicates that God has a desire. His desire is to cohabitate with us. But the increasing restriction of persons and the, the systems of sacrifice and, and, and mediation, even for those who were approved, communicates the problem, the separation, the barrier that we have of sin that separates us from God. God lived among his people. But unfortunately, there still was a problem for the average person who wanted to worship God. The common worshiper could only go so far, and even a priest could only go a little bit farther. That's the double-edged sword of the tabernacle. It was the truth that God once again was with humanity, but humanity was still separated from God. And it was to remind Israel and remind us of God's holiness and the seriousness of sin, that it required a payment to be made, a payment that God would make for us. And that's really the great news. So what I want to do is, is take a look. Um, we looked a little bit um, last week at the gate that, was, that is there. It's recorded. The instruction on how to make the gate was found in Exodus chapter 27, verse 16. And it points to what Jesus would say in the book of John when he said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, he will go in and out, and he will find pasture. And, and what Jesus is doing is using the imagery of a shepherd and the sheep, and it's very significant for us because we are called God's sheep as his people. But it's, it's more significant than that, as we'll discover when we go in it a little bit. We enter into God's presence through faith in Jesus Christ. In exchange for our faith, God credits us with Jesus' perfection, with his righteousness. 
And it's an incredible exchange because no matter how hard I try, I could never measure up to where I could go in to God's presence. God had to come out and get me and provide a way in. He did the same for you as well. And so what we see in the scripture is that the door ultimately is a picture of of the truth we find in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Because Jesus himself is that door, he's that entry point into God's presence. Now once inside um, the gate, after you go through the gate, you're faced with an altar. And the altar is made of bronze, and bronze in the scripture represents judgment. And so there at that altar, what would happen is priests would be waiting and you would walk in and you would bring your sacrifice or your offering. And it was incredibly serious because it wasn't, um, it wasn't something where you would just bring your sacrifice and, someone would, and hand it off to someone else and your, your debt's been paid. It didn't look like that. In fact, what God wanted to communicate to Israel and he wants to communicate to us is the seriousness and the personal consequence of our sin. Because here's what it would be. Here's what you would have seen if you would have walked into the tabernacle during the wilderness or walked into the temple in Jerusalem many years later. Here's what it would be. You would walk in carrying your sacrifice, a lamb that was one years old, And if it was for a sin offering, it would be a female lamb without any spot, without any blemish. And it's a picture of the same things happens on Passover, except for it's a male lamb. And you walk in, and the priest is there, and he has in his hands a knife. And here's what happens. is You would go up to the priest, and you would say, I'm bringing a guilt offering, a sin offering to the Lord because... I have sinned. And there with that animal that you would place upon its feet, you would place your hand upon its head and you would confess your sin. While you're touching that animal, it's a picture of you transferring your sin onto a substitute, someone else who is going to take the place you and I deserved. And standing there in that presence, You would confess. You would say, I'm Drew Stevens, and I am unworthy before the Lord. I'm a sinner, and I confess these sins that I have committed, and I recognize that what I deserve is death because the Scripture says the wages of sin is death. But God provided a way that something innocent could take my place. And you would confess your sins upon the head of that animal and then it would be killed and offered to the Lord. Now, that may seem barbaric. It may seem hard to understand, but it reflects the seriousness that a holy God takes in our sin. But more than that, it represents how far God himself would go for you and for me. Because that lamb was innocent. 
But even more so, it was a picture pointing to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That's why when John the Baptist is talking with the disciples and he sees Jesus walking, he says, behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. What every Jewish person would have heard when they, when they heard that is they would have imagined that scene there in the temple or in the tabernacle of them confessing their own sins upon a lamb who was innocent that was going to take away their sin. Now, the message of the scripture is that those sacrifices of animals were only a, a temporary thing. It was simply showing the seriousness of sin and the requirements of the law that someone without blemish, without flaw, who was perfect, had to take our place and be a substitute for you and for me. That altar points us to the cross because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He took the place I deserved, you deserved. He lived the life that you and I never could because we can't measure up, and he died the death that we deserved. That's what the altar is pointing to. It's pointing to God's sacrifice, God's provision for us. And, and it is challenging in some ways for us to understand it. But this is what Jesus is talking about um, in the Scripture. And the Scriptures uh, proclaim of Jesus for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that righteousness is the requirement of enjoying God's presence. So the altar points to Jesus and to the cross. And this is why Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning not, that are not Jewish. They're Gentiles like most of us. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice so that they will be one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Pointing, his, it's a pre prediction of the resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. That statement is huge. Jesus willingly laid down his life for you, knowing everything about you, everything you would ever do, everything you would ever say, every failure you would, you would have, every time you would deny him. He knew all of that, and he said, I willingly lay down my life as a substitute for you. Is there any greater love than that? That God would go so far for us. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to take it up again. Um, this is the charge I've received from the Father. Jesus on the cross paid our price in every way. That's the picture that you have at the altar. It was a place of sacrifice, a place of death. Now, by trusting, when, when you would place your hands upon that animal, you were transferring your guilt, your sin to that animal. And you were trusting that God was going to honor your faith in his provision, in his law, the way that he made for sins to be forgiven, that it would be transferred upon that animal and you would be forgiven and cleansed. 
In the same way, we are saved by faith by placing our trust personally and individually on Jesus Christ. It's exactly the same. We are saved by faith, um, saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of acts that we have done, but by Christ, what he has done. Now, here's the good news. Once you've done that, you're welcomed farther and closer into God's presence. And the next thing that you come to there in the courtyard of the, of the tabernacle was a bronze laver or basin. And, and the scripture tells us in Exodus that this was actually made out of the ladies' mirrors. They would take uh, mirrors in those days were not made out of glass like we have today. They were made out of brass or bronze. And, and so it, would, it was beaten to, and formed into a huge basin. And there's something that's kind of significant about this. There are several things that are significant. Um, the mirror, God being specific about the mirror, is important because here's what would happen. When you would come up to this um, bronze basin and you would look in, you would see actually two reflections of yourself. When it's filled with water, you would see your reflection in the water. But actually, in the basin itself, you see a reflection, and it's a little bit different. So tell me what you see about your reflection in here. Upside down. What? It's upside down. Yeah, yeah it is upside down. You're going, what? <laughs> okay, this is significant, I believe. Because what you see in the basin is a picture of what happens and what's portrayed in baptism. In baptism, which we're going to celebrate next week, and uh, we've got uh, others coming up as well, so if you're interested in baptism, please let me know. In baptism, we are identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And what we, what we do when we baptize someone, we say, buried with Christ in baptism, rise again to walk in newness of life. And I believe those two reflections that are seen there in the basin are reflective of what happens in baptism. My old life is buried into the water with Jesus' death. Every, all of my sin, all of my old identity, my old nature is buried with him. But I rise up to walk as a new person in Christ Jesus' righteousness. And I think even this, the, the symbolism of the reflection is significant. When I look into the water, I see the old me from the ground up. When I look in the reflection in the basin, I see someone who's transformed from heaven downward by Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that cool? I get excited about little things, so um, hang with me on that. Now, this bronze um, basin was a place that, that didn't speak about salvation, it spoke about cleansing. And so what would happen there as you entered into the, to the tabernacle is that the priests, before they would go into the holy place, they would come to this basin and they would wash their hands and their feet. And so it was a picture of being transformed, being cleansed, being uh, welcomed into God's presence. And they were required to, to wash their hands and to wash their feet. And so whereas... First of all, the basin represents a picture of baptism, of this transformation of a new identity because of what Jesus has done. It also pictures 
what happens in the work of God's word in our life. In the book of Ephesians, Jesus is talking, or excuse me, is, is inspiring the Apostle Paul to write about marriage, and he talks about how, how marriage reflects Christ and his church, and how Jesus longs to present his bride, that's you and I, as one who is spotless. And the way that he says that we are cleansed is by the washing of the word. Here's what that means. Just as water would wash off physical dirt and and it would be a ceremony that would represent a need for having clean hands and a pure heart to come into God's presence, so coming into God's word shows us a reflection of our sin, of our life, of the things in in, in our life that are against God's righteousness. And and the word says that the word of God is living and active like a a two-edged sword. Maybe a a picture for us to grab a hold of even is, is like a scalpel where it's able to cut between the bone and the marrow. It's able to to see all that's in you and that's in me that needs to be removed so that we can become more and more like Christ. This basin was a reminder that God saves us. His sacrifice provides for us, but he also wants to continually transform us and make us more and more like his son. That's what's presented here. When you would come there, you would wash. You would be cleansed. And it even points to what Jesus did at the Last Supper. If you'll remember in this, in this story, and it's recorded in John chapter 13, Jesus, when he was sharing the bread and the wine with his disciples, it says during the meal that he took off his outer coat and that he got a basin of water and he knelt down and began to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, Lord, don't wash, you can't wash my feet. And because and, <laughs> Peter's bold and he likes to say what he's thinking without thinking about it. And, and Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have a part in me. You're, you're not with me if you're not allowing me to cleanse you. And so Peter then says, well, then wash my, all of me, wash my head. And he says, no. You're already clean in that sense. He's saying, you already have faith in me. You're already baptized as well in recognition that you're identifying with my my death, burial, and resurrection. You just need your hands and your feet to be cleansed so that you're welcomed closer and closer into my presence and so that you look more and more like me. That's the picture that we have in the basin because from this point on, we're entering into intimacy with God. Once you stepped past the basin and into the holy place, it was a place of fellowship, a place where sin had already been dealt with so that you could enjoy God's presence. God chose furniture to put in his dwelling place, in his tent, to be a place where you and I could connect with him. And that brings us into the door where we come to what's called the the bread of the presence and the table of showbread. And it was a golden table um, because it represented God's divinity, who God was. Outside dealt with, with sin in the bronze. Inside dealt with God's presence in the table itself and the other, um, the altar of incense and the, the lampstand. So in Exodus chapter 25, verses 
23 through 30, it gives a description of the table for bread. And I'm just going to read that and we're going to look at it a little bit um, before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. By the way, a cubit is about half a meter. Okay, if that helps you out. It's a little bit less than half a meter. Um, And a cubit and a half in its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings in the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. In other words, God wanted to make sure that wherever they went, he was able to take fellowship with them um, alongside of them. He made the tabernacle portable because God wanted to be in the presence of his people wherever they are. That's a truth for us also. God wants you to be in his presence at at work, in your home, when you're by yourself, when you're on the, on the metro or on the tram, he wants you to be in his presence, to enjoy his presence all the time. He goes with us. This is why Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Not just that he watches over us, but he wants to truly have us experience his presence, a connection with him. And so, um, it described how to make this table and, and all of the dishes and plates and incense and the bowls for drink offerings. You shall make all of it of pure gold and you shall set bread of the presence on the table before the Lord regularly. And here's what would happen. Every Sabbath, the priests would come in with fresh baked bread and they would place it upon the table of showbread. And it was a reminder that God was the one who provides for all of our needs. But also it pointed to the fact of fellowship. Those loaves of bread would stay in there on the table. There's a picture of what the table likely looked like. And they would stay in there. And then when they would bring new bread in, the priests would then eat of the bread. And it would be theirs for their provision and for their enjoyment. But the table of showbread was a reminder of a couple of things. It was a reminder of how God provided food in the wilderness, the manna. And it was pointing forward to what Jesus would do in what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. It was pointing towards his body where he would say, he would take bread and bless it and break it and say, this is my body which is given for you. It's a picture of what Christ was going to do, that God all along had a plan and a provision to meet every need that we have. It also was reflected when Jesus taught us to pray. We, we sang a part of the Lord's Prayer earlier. Well, what does he teach us to pray? He says, give us this day our daily bread. And, and these loaves of bread, the 12 loaves of bread, were what God had in mind. When Jesus taught us to pray, it was a reminder that he is the one who supply every need that we have. The most basic thing that we have is a need for food, for fuel for our body. And he promises he will provide everything that we need on a daily basis. And so the table of showbread pointed towards 
that. And it was a table with bread because God's deepest desire is for us to have fellowship with him. There's nothing that brings people together more closely than sharing a meal together. You know, you can sit down and you can, you can have a visit, but it's different when you share a meal. There's, there's a commonness that happens. There's a connection that happens when you're sharing, you're eating together. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, I want to be a part of the ordinary but important part of your life. I want to hear the stories that you share around the table. I want you to experience and draw close to my heart. I want to share a meal with you. And that's why Jesus, even at the Last Supper, he pointed even farther forward. And he said, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine with you until I drink of it together in my Father's kingdom. And that points us to the time when all the saints are resurrected and Jesus returns and we sit down at what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. All these things that God provided in the tabernacle were pointing to one central truth. God wants you to be with him. That's what we gotta grab a hold of. Everything that we do, some of it seems a little... Maybe it's hard for us to understand how it all connects, but the more that you understand who God is, the more you discover his word, it makes more sense. The pieces fit together better, but the central message is God is saying, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. The message of the Lord's Supper is a message of coming. That's why we invite people to come and take of the bread and of the cup. It's because it's a representation of what Jesus is saying to each person in this room today. Come to me. I will give you life. I will give you bread. I will give you living water that will fill your life with peace and with joy and with my presence. Everything in the tabernacle points to that one truth. And when we understand it, it takes on a much, much deeper significance for us. Now, we have a a good idea of what this table actually looked like, um, as well as the candle, uh, the lampstand as well, because these items were taken in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed under Titus, the Roman emperor. He ransacked Jerusalem And he took away the things that were inside the temple. And there's an arch of Titus that's on display in Rome. And on that, if you go to the close-up picture, you can can see there's the the menorah, the the lampstand, and we'll look at that next week. And then over here to the right, with the poles coming out of it, is the table of showbread. They were real things that were there that were taken when the temple was destroyed. And, And it was ransacked. And the reason why it was ransacked is because that temple was no longer needed because Jesus Christ is the temple. He is the tabernacle who dwelt among us. He is the one who brings us into his presence. And so the model was no longer needed because what was real had come. That's what we celebrate in communion as well. And so I'm gonna invite Um, those who are serving in communion to come. And you're invited. If you've trusted Jesus Christ 
as your Savior and as your Lord, you are welcome to come and take of the bread and of the cup. There's not anything magical about it, but it's a reminder of God's invitation to each of us. Now, what he tells us to do when we come to the table is to not, um, not to take it lightly, but to take it seriously, to remember that we need to be washed by the word and allow God's spirit to speak to us and reveal any area of sin, any part of us that's in rebellion against God and confess it and turn from it. And then he promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then he invites us to come and to eat. The scripture tells us in in the gospels that Jesus on the night before he was crucified took bread and he broke it and blessed it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your provision. Thank you for your desire to come closer to us so that we can enter into your presence through Christ. Thank you that you provided everything for us to be able to come to you by faith in what Jesus has done and in who he is. We gladly partake of this bread and receive it with thanksgiving in remembrance of you. The scripture tells us also that he took the cup and he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this cup is the new covenant. It is my blood that is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for offering your son. Thank you that he was willing to be our substitute, to have my sin placed upon his head and bear it on the cross. He was willing to have his blood be poured out because your word says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have done this for me, that you have loved each one of us more than we can possibly comprehend. In faith in you, we drink of this cup remembering what you have done and remembering that one day soon you are coming again. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus.